0: Once again,
1: every hour on the hour, hoffin' and puffin'. Look, Doctor, I know science comes first, but that thing is ridiculous for six hours straight, every hour on the hour.
2: Listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks.
3: That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science,
0: technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Gordon Campbell. Coming up on today's show, Chimps, E. coli, and Uteruses.
2: Joining us today is Denise Foley from Prevention Magazine to talk about the flu vaccine shortage.
0: In addition, you find out what is nitrous oxide. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world famous question of the week
2: here on Berkeley Groks we Frankie Rocks,
3: I'm Franklin, and I guess that makes me Charles Lee,
0: and I'm Gordon Campbell.
3: How's everyone doing? Feeling the excitement
2: of science. Oh, you feeling like Superman? <laughs> um, I don't feel quite
3: like Superman. No, that's like probably fortunate. Man. Yeah,
2: but you know, I'm still voting for stem cells.
3: Uh, certainly, our heartfelt condolences go out to Christopher Reeve, who this week passed away.
2: Yeah, he was a great man.
3: Yeah, probably going to be a blowout for a lot of researchers out there. Who We're be maybe
2: will energize the community once again.
3: Uh, I would certainly hope so.
2: Speaking of people who aren't here anymore, Maurice Wilkins is also gone. He's the uh, other guy who co discovered the DNA structure with Francis Crick and James Cook.
3: That's uh, Two down (laughs) down this year, (laughs) huh? And Rodney Dangerfield Which is again A big blow for Stem cell research I No think respect Probably the only person Who stem cell research Could have helped Okay so <laughs> let's talk about
2: Living people are.
3: Well I'm, you know I'm still excited Jazz by the Nobel Prize Which happened last week and
2: Very noble I think we should start Giving them away One of these days
3: <laughs> I don't think The Grok Award Will have quite the Integrity or the it Stature actually, of the Nobel Prize But
2: Yes So here's some development Which is quite interesting In terms of Bacterial detection So you ever had E. coli in your food before?
3: Probably every time I go to McDonald's Or Jack in the Box In this country right? Right. I think it's actually a dish in Thailand. Oh yeah,
2: you know, spicy <laughs> E. <Everywhere>. Coli. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out some researchers are using nanoparticles to uh, detect it, and it turns out you can do it in 20 minutes as opposed to the 48 hours it conventionally takes. You
0: just sprinkle some on your food when you go to gone. Well,
2: you can. Have. So basically, you have these uh, nanoparticles which have fluorescent dyes in, and they attach very easily to the surface of these bacteria, and you can detect them almost in situ.
3: I wonder how the uh, fluorescent dyes taste. <laughs> I mean, you got one. kind
2: come of minty. I don't know. Green ones. <laughs> <Patented> in fluorescent <laughs> green burgers. <laughs> but this is nice. I'm waiting two days to find out if you're. Meat is infected or not, you can find it in 20 minutes. Then, uh, and, so, and so then,
3: if you have glowing green meat, is that any more palatable? I think. Would <laughs> they be palatable? any less likely to sell? It? <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, <so. laughs> well, is it any worse than the tuna? Some of in the sushi places—they actually just sort of like gloss it up, so it glistens and looks fresh. I
2: heard one of the tricks really? they use is that they put carbon monoxide when they package it, and that apparently keeps it redder for a longer time. Oh, yeah.
3: So you just get that, and you get the fluorescent green and green and you have a nice Christmas
2: dish. Mm. So I guess if you want to know more, this actually came out from our very favorite journal, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Peanuts Yes. Have
0: so you guys ever wondered how to make a uterus as you've been hey, contemplating? It's, you know, I've wondered that <laughs> since... Uranus? The, that's another operation,
3: I think. Oh. Some people have more than one, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, ever since the day I was born, contemplated that. <laughs> <laughs> Not for me personally, but <laughs> maybe for my personal use, though. <laughs> <Thank
2: you. laughs> Real I don't think people. I want to know about it. Yeah, well, that's in the real world. You
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. so, so how
2: easy is it to create a uterus?
0: Well, I don't know how easy it is, but researchers have identified two genes that they suspect played a role in creating the biological equipment needed for live birth. Hmm. Just two genes, huh? At least two that play a role. Hmm. These two genes are HoxA11 and HoxA13, which make transcription factors that bind to other genes and tell them when to turn on and off. And the sequence of Hox genes is so consistent across species that biologists once thought that the genes had changed very little through the course of evolution. But this new study, like others in recent years, suggests that some divergence among Hox genes has, in fact, contributed to the diversity of animal body plan. So
2: is this Cox gene only found on the female chromosome?
0: I think that's a Freudian slip there. It's a Hox gene. (laughs) (laughs) Not the Cox (laughs) 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 gene. Well, I guess it's not found only on female, but its role in producing the Uterus apparently is gender specific. Mm-hmm. At least. Oh, okay. So the timing of the changes to the Hox genes parallels stages in the evolution of the mammalian female reproductive tract. And the author of the study, Lynch, hypothesizes that changes in Hox A11 and Hox A13 could have altered the development of this organ, perhaps by allowing these proteins to bind to different genes, creating new kinds of cells.
3: So, so I mean, those Hox genes, I mean, they, they basically pattern the entire developmental mammal. Right. So. And uh,
0: apparently, this paper was the first to link natural selection of developmental genes to, to a specific change in the way animals develop.
3: So, I mean, that's really a very major change, I guess, the evolution of animals is the development <laughs> of a placenta. Yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is nice, because I enjoyed my time there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Relaxing, huh? Yeah, it was, you know, very
3: warm and fuzzy. So.
2: Wish <laughs> I could go back there. <laughs> Yeah, well...
3: <laughs> but the has- I think the real estate's taken, though. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> if people want to learn more about that,
0: where can they take a look? They can look on Science Now website. Okay. <laughs>
3: All right, so what's your favorite tool? The screwdriver.
4: <laughs>
2: it's
3: a loaded question. <laughs> it, well, <laughs> I didn't intend it to be, but have you ever considered a pointed stick? Well, you know, I use chopsticks. Those are quite... Pointed. Useful, quite fascinating. In fact, it's uh, one of the tools in the Chimp's Toolkit.
2: So uh, what do you use it for? Protection? Uh, you know,
3: poking things. <laughs> poking things. <laughs> so, you know, for quite some time, researchers, of course, wondered about tool use in other animal species, right? One of the thoughts was that perhaps tool use was restricted, of course, to humans and first defined us as a species. Right. But it's known for quite some time, chimpanzees actually use a number of different uh, sticks to harvest food from termite mounds. Huh. But there hasn't been a lot of evidence thus far, and now they've been caught on tape. Actually, they've used hidden surveillance cameras to capture chimpanzees as they're actually foraging for food.
2: Is that actually legal? I mean, that sounds like a <laughs> violation of animal rights.
3: Yeah, I don't think they got a release from <laughs> them, so... <laughs> but it'll actually be on the brand new reality show, which will be on NBC, so... Yeah,
2: animals gone wild. <laughs> <laughs> you have to pay
3: 1995 for that one. <laughs> <laughs> so how do they use the stick? There's a number of different types of procedures that they use. They have different types of sticks for different types of behaviors. So they have a poking stick where they can actually just pound into the mound to get in and apparently they also have a different type of stick which they use just to probe and actually get the termites out, sort of like a fishhook type thing. And they were able to show that the chimpanzees carry both of these and they switch between them fairly rapidly and it's kind of interesting because up until this point they hadn't seen this type of diversity in the toolkits among chimpanzees because the only chimpanzees that they studied were these fringe populations in East Africa which would basically just pound into these mounds using their fists. So <laughs> <laughs>
0: that it sounds like, pretty effective. Sounds like, yeah, yeah pretty I would think so. I mean, why... It's
2: sound like a dentist, different tools for picking out different <laughs> parts of the teeth.
3: You know, I'm surprised dentistry hasn't evolved much further than it has. Really, if you think about it, just like little scraping things, <laughs> <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> drills. But yeah, just
2: get a chip to clean your teeth. Yeah. Well, it's very medieval.
3: <laughs> yeah, so quite fascinating, so it shows that the evolution of tool use as it happens in one of our closest ancestors, the chimpanzee. Science. And
2: if anyone wants to know more about this? It's
3: going to be published in the November issue of the American Naturalist. <laughs>
2: So Charles, I heard you're gonna vote for George Bush this year, is that true?
3: Uh, well, let's just say that I'll probably not be voting for George Bush.
2: <laughs> oh, okay, okay. You're not one of those closet conservatives then.
3: And the closet about many things, but it's really not about the conservatism. <laughs> 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 Although I, I respect some of their points of view. <laughs> right, of course. Not many of them, but some of them. <laughs>
2: well, I'm going to vote for stem cells.
3: That's a good vote. I'm not sure if it's really on the ballot, per se, but <laughs> <laughs> if stem cells were actually running for president, I think I'd vote over, over George Bush. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's certainly a very political year for science, it seems like.
2: It seems like stem cells, defense, nuclear guess, proliferation.
3: Uh, the environment. Yeah. It also, it's also bringing out uh, people you normally wouldn't hear uh, talking about these issues.
2: Yeah, scientists are usually not so outspoken, huh? Uh,
3: generally, no. I think we're just sort of uh, content with the living away in the lab and uh-huh. <laughs> having beakers blow up in our uh-huh. face. So what's going on? Well, I guess they had a uh, panel here yesterday. Oh, that's right. At, uh, science in the uh, Bush Administration. Or is it LACO? Or LACO. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's sort of an oxymoronic title, really, I think.
2: <laughs> yeah, so there was a panel, a round roundtable discussion, right?
3: Actually uh, organized and chaired by uh, Michael Pollan, who's Knight, uh, Professor of uh, Science Journalism here.
2: Right, here at Berkeley. Yeah. And uh, we had distinguished guests, actually one of our former guests, uh, David Baltimore.
3: Right, who's president of Caltech, uh, was uh-huh. discussing some of the issues, I guess, surrounding stem cell research and right. the policies surrounding that.
2: Right, and we also had uh, Kurt Goffrey, I guess he's the chair of the Union of Concerned Scientists.
3: Right, came out with earlier this year a, uh, a letter, right? A letter against uh, like
2: six, 60 scientists, 28 Nobel Prize winners, Basically Kurt, against the administration policies. Which was almost unheard of, really. Yeah, and I think right now it's up to like 6,000 people had signed on or something.
3: Right, so it shows something is a bit amiss, right? <laughs>
2: yes, yeah, something wicked this way comes.
3: Or it's already here. <laughs> I don't know, what did you think about the whole thing?
2: I think one of the issues that was brought to my attention was the whole idea of how media should be conveying the message of science and scientists to the public and how to get them more uh, proactive in terms of, of the issues which are facing us. And I guess, you know, especially in a uh, technologically driven world we are in right now, we need to be aware of issues and not be dictated by some of the mandates of the Old Testament.
3: <laughs> True. I'm, I'm not really sure what those mandates are. But <laughs> anyway, but so, uh, yeah, it was actually a question that was faced to the panel, particularly like David Gustin, who sort of had the opposing point of view, though. Right. But really, in a way, he was arguing not so much for the politicization of science, but rather the democratization of science. It's Very a, interesting issue, I think. Right, which I guess would require more of a dialogue with the public about scientific concerns.
2: So what exactly do you think is the democratization of science?
3: Well, I guess as he was arguing, he was saying that, for instance, they should have more, uh, say, community member panels on, say, uh, mm-hmm. granting boards or things like that. Mm-hmm. But as I guess one of the panel members countered, well, I mean, what could really a um, democratic uh, committee really tell you about particle physics?
2: Right, because, uh, of course, these panels will tell you solve the problems which are relevant today, but don't focus on things which are just interesting, because then again, later on, these interesting things could become very useful.
3: This is true. This like, is
2: tr- for example, quantum mechanics was just a novelty when it started, right? right. Now, all of our is based on some of these principles, right?
3: So, as, as they say, you can't get facts by a uh, popular vote, really. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I don't know. Very fascinating, though, and certainly something that heralds something of difference this election year.
2: Yeah, and I guess if anyone's interested in listening to this, they have, I think, the webcast of it on the, uh, the Berkeley News Center, right? Right. Or just go to the Journalism School at Berkeley, and you find it on their website. Right.
3: And check it out, and take it into consideration as you vote this year for either um, facts or uh, <laughs> fiction or God. <laughs> that I think uh, ropes into one of those two categories, but I'm not sure which one that is. <laughs> And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming up next, Ms. Denise Foley, editor at Prevention Magazine, will join us to discuss the upcoming flu vaccine shortage. So stay tuned. To Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, it's that time of year again when as many as 100 million flu shots are given out. But last Tuesday, one of two companies in England producing the vaccine was closed down by regulars, heralding a 50% cut in the supply of the vaccine this season. Well, what will be the effects of the shortage and who should get the vaccine? Joining us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss the flu vaccine shortage is Ms. Denise Foley, a deputy editor of Prevention Magazine. Ms. Foley is also the editor of many health-related books, including Unequal Treatment and the Women's Encyclopedia of Health and Emotional Health. Ms. Foley, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Oh, thank you, Charles. Uh, Well, certainly a pleasure to have you on the program, and I'm sure as most of our listeners have heard thus far, there's a flu vaccine shortage going to occur this season. I'm curious if maybe you can explain why this is.
4: Well, actually a few weeks ago, a company, Chiron, announced that about 15 million doses of its vaccine have been contaminated by a bacteria. It's a fairly common bacteria that's found in water, and it can lead to all kinds of different kinds of infections, including pneumonia. And they thought they might lose that 15 million, Uh, but then last week, regulators in the United Kingdom went into the plant, and they were not happy with what they saw in terms of quality control. So they suspended the company's license to manufacture the vaccine for three months, So because it takes about five to six months to culture and produce a vaccine that is basically the end of their work for this flu season
3: Did they have any vaccines that were already produced that were clean
4: they're not allowed to release any of their vaccines at all.
3: Mm. And the other company that creates the uh, vaccine, can't they produce some more of the vaccine?
4: No, they can't. Aventis uh, uh, Pasteur, which is a French company, produces the other half, about 54 million doses of flu shot this year. They are like the other company. You know, it takes them five to six months to produce a vaccine, and they won't have enough in time for flu season.
3: So what does this really mean for uh, those people getting flu vaccines this year? I mean, how many people get shots?
4: Well, it's different every year. This year, ironically, was the year that the government decided to really, really hector people into, into getting a <laughs> flu shot. They, they think everybody should get a flu shot, and now they're saying, whoa, now healthy people should just forgo the flu shot for this year. But they expected to, to sell those, you know, more than 100 million doses this year.
3: So who are they recommending, then, should definitely get it this season?
4: Well, the people who should get it are all children, babies, ages 6 to 23 months old, adults 65 years old older, anyone between the ages of 2 and 64 with an underlying chronic medical condition like heart disease or asthma, Mm -hmm. lung disease, any woman who will be pregnant during the flu season, residents of nursing homes and long-term care facilities and their caregivers, Kids six months to 18 years who are on aspirin therapy, any healthcare worker who's involved in direct patient care, so that would be doctors and nurses, and any of these out of home caregivers or household contacts that would be the nannies or the daycare people who are in contact with children under the ages of six months.
3: So since there is going to be a shortage, what steps do these people n- need to take to make sure that they get one?
4: Well, they should be calling their doctor right away to make sure that they're going to be able to get the shot. Now, a lot of doctors and hospitals did not get their shots. There are some areas of the country where they generally do get their vaccines from Chiron, and Aventus has already distributed a lot of its vaccines, so they may need to go to places they haven't been before to get the vaccine.
3: Are uh, government officials trying to do anything to uh, ration out the vaccine in some way?
4: They're working with Aventis to try to make sure, I think Aventis has something like 20 or 30 million shots that it hasn't distributed yet, and they're, they're trying to make sure that it's distributed equitably across the country and specifically to get to p- these people who are on the high-risk list because these are the people who wind up in the hospital and are among the 36,000 people who die every year of the flu.
3: Um, I guess this is an issue. Some people might take the flu a little bit lightly. Is the flu really dangerous, and how concerned should people be about it?
4: Well, it can be dangerous, It's especially if you're in those high-risk groups, because generally those people are people whose immune systems are compromised. I may not be able to fight off the flu. They may get more complications. Most of us, so those of us who are healthy, are probably going to just, if we get the flu, we're just going to be miserable for a week or two, and then bounce right back. But when you, when you think about 200,000 people being hospitalized every year for the flu you know it is not no pun intended but it's nothing to sneeze at
3: Okay, well, so what would be your recommendations for like, all the people listening regarding just the flu season coming up this year?
4: Well, if you're not going to be able to get a flu shot this year, I think you need to really pay much closer attention to how you're taking care of yourself. The number one thing you should do is wash your hands. Wash mm. them a lot. And don't just, you know, run them under under the water and put a little soap and, you know, be done in a few seconds. You should wash your hands for the length of time that it takes you to, say, your ABCs. Mm. And, and actually, soap and water can, can get the viruses and bacteria off your hands just as well as an antibiotic bacterial soap. The other thing that you should do is if you do have the flu or if you have a cold like me and you're trying to be polite and you put your hand over your mouth and you sneeze or cough, wash your hands right away. But better yet, use a tissue and throw it away. The the way that flu and cold viruses are spread generally is not because somebody sneezes at you, but because they sneeze into their hand and touch something that you then touch. Mm. The other thing that you should do is eat right, eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, get some good, you know, orange juice, vitamin C, get some exercise, get outside. And the other thing is get a lot of sleep. Make sure you get a good night's sleep every night because your immune system recharges itself every night. And if you're not getting enough sleep, it's not producing the kind of chemicals that it needs to increase the number of natural killer cells that you have. So that's what you want. You want an immune system that's really geared up to fight off whatever it encounters.
3: That's probably good advice all year round, really. Yes, it is. Okay, and finally, what do health officials really think about this coming flu season? Do they think it's going to be particularly bad?
4: You know, when it comes to the flu, everything is the best guess because (laughs) even, you know, we found out last year that, you know, when the World Health Organization meets in February, their virologists get together and they decide what the flu is going to be. Sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong, and last year they were wrong. Mm. So people who got the flu shot d- could have gotten the flu because it was a different strain. Mm. So nobody ever really knows. It's not really an exact science.
3: So I guess we'll just have to wait and see what, uh,
4: what happens. Yeah, cross our fingers right and on. wash our hands.
3: <laughs> All right. Ms. Foley, thank you very much for joining us. I'm Grox and telling us about the upcoming flu year. Okay. Stay healthy. We'll certainly try. Thank you very much for joining us. Bye-bye. Okay. And you're just listening to Ms. Denise Foley, editor at Prevention Magazine, discussing the upcoming flu vaccine shortage. You're listening to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming up next, you can find out why don't spiders get caught in their own web. So stay tuned. back to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, have you ever wondered why don't spiders get caught in their own web? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. The spider spinning his web for
0: the unwary fly.
1: Ever wonder why spiders don't get stuck in their own webs? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. Nature has equipped spiders with some unique tools to help them avoid the same sticky situation that the many hapless insects when they stumble upon a spider's web. To get a leg up on a spider's ingenious engineering, let's hitch a ride on the leg of a typical garden spider. Go ahead, pick a leg. Any leg. At the very bottom of each leg are several small claws. The bottom claw resembles a tiny crochet hook, so as she steps from one strand to the next, the hook encircles the strand and she swings right along. Now, reach out and touch the silky threads of her web. Thought it would be a lot stickier, didn't you? Actually, our spider does most of her traveling on these anchor silk strands that radiate outward from the center. These strands have a much smoother consistency than the adhesive cross silks that are used for trapping. Now, continuing along... Our eight-legged friend has just lost her footing and she's headed straight for the sticky center of the web. Hold on tight. As we swing toward the web center, notice that she's still attached to the web by what's called a drag line. And when we hit the sticky part, a special abdominal gland secretes an oil that lets her slide right across even the most gluey parts of the web. And using the drag line, she can then regain her footing and pull herself and us back up to a safer part of the web in no time at all. Well, thanks for helping us weave today's show and for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, Making Science Make Sense.
3: Ooh, Everyday Science lady. You know, something tells me that I wouldn't mind getting caught in your web.
2: All right, now here's the math scientist with the answer to last week's question of the week. <laughs> That's
3: right there, boys, I'm actually doing like a Cowboy Bob here. Well, that's even better. So, here it's Cowboy Bob now, doing the answer to last week's question of the week. excuse me. While I sniff the sky. That's right. Sniff the laughing gas, buddy. That's right. The answer to last week's question of the week. What is nitrous oxide? Got it. (laughs) Oh, boy, that stuff, man, that makes you, huh? It's the laughing gas nitrous oxide. Whoa! Excuse me while I sniff the sky.
2: And I'm Forrest Gump with this week's question of the week. You know all those gases, air, laughing gas, they all look the same to me. They're kind of clear. But I heard this nitrous oxide is a little bit different from the nitrous oxide we just talked about. If you know what it does or think you know what it does, email us at at groxathotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you might just get the point. And that's
0: all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox.
3: Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
0: If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Gordon Campbell.
2: And I'm Frank Ling. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net.
3: And I'm Charles Lee. Stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.